0: Ambassador Robert Ford spent a long career in the Foreign Service, most recently as the State Department's lead on Syria, proposing and implementing policy and strategies with European and Middle Eastern allies to try to resolve the conflict in Syria. He resigned in 2014 after becoming frustrated with how the Obama administration handled Syria's civil war. Ambassador Ford was in Hartford this week to talk about the Assad regime and the future of Syria, a country gutted by five years of turmoil. Prior to his Syria post, Ford served as a deputy U.S. ambassador to Iraq and the U.S. ambassador to Algeria, among other postings. He's currently a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington and a senior fellow at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale University. He was a guest Tuesday evening on a panel hosted by the World Affairs Council of Connecticut, which I moderated. I started out with the question about Bashar al-Assad achieving his strongest position yet in December government forces defeated rebels in aleppo with that success when we look at a map of syria who controls what
1: well the first and most important thing for people to realize is bashar al-assad has won the war i want to say that again bashar al-assad has won the war and that means there won't be accountability that means there won't be large numbers of refugees going home the war will go on they'll still be fighting but he's going to win and he's gonna stay. And what that means is there isn't gonna be an accountability for the war crimes, chemical weapons, barrel bombs, torturing tens of thousands of people to death. There isn't gonna be any of that. Um, He controls basically now the western half of the country and his forces are now moving into the eastern half of the country. Um, They're actually now coming close to the forces that the American Pentagon has been supporting in the fight against the Islamic State. Um, In fact, they linked up physically, uh, first time they've come into contact with them. They're not shooting at each other yet, but um, Bashar al-Assad has said, Lucy, he will retake every inch of Syria, even if it takes 10 or 20 years.
0: He's very bold. Is it because he has Russia alongside him?
1: Um, Even more important to him than Russia is Iran. Iran has... Um, organized and sent into Syria tens of thousands of fighters from countries like Lebanon, Iraq, Pakistan, and Afghanistan to fight next to the dwindling number of Assad's own soldiers. Um, The Syrian army has suffered terrible attrition during the last six years of war. Um, But the Iranians have organized other foot soldiers. And, of course, the Russians are great allies. Not only is their air force constantly bombing The moderate opposition but today for example Russia vetoed a United Nations draft Security Council resolution that would have imposed sanctions on 10 Syrian army officers who were involved in the dropping of chemical weapons in 2014 and 15 it's the seventh Russian veto of the United Nations Security Council resolution trying to punish and deter the Syrian government.
0: You said that uh, Bashar al-Assad has won the war. So what is the future for Syria? Well,
1: for Assad, winning the war means he stays. That was what it was all about. That's what all this fighting has been about, um, that he stays. And he will preside over a country that's largely ruined. By the way, the Russians um, who've been bombing all these buildings that you've seen, the Russians are now coming out and say it's time for the Americans to provide money to rebuild Syria. I'm not kidding. I am not kidding. They really think that the Americans now need to lead an international effort. The exact words of the Russian foreign minister were, the United States and the West need to establish a new Marshall Plan to rebuild Syria.
0: You were uh, ambassador under President Obama. You resigned from that post, um, and there have been many reports of the comments you made about why you were frustrated um, with how the U.S. handled uh, the Syrian conflict. Walk us through the missteps.
1: First, I have huge respect for President Obama. Um, But I think on the Syria policy, the perfect became the enemy of the good, waiting for the perfect option became the enemy of taking good options. A couple of key windows of opportunity that were lost. Back in 2012, Assad's hold was really weak. Um, His army was defecting in large numbers. The Syrian opposition was advancing, but there was an extremist element that was present. It's not a secret that Secretary of State Clinton, CIA Director David Petraeus, Defense Secretary Leon Panetta and others urged Obama to begin arming groups we knew in the moderate Syrian opposition to try to get Assad under enough pressure to negotiate an end. The president didn't want to do that. Um, We can talk about why. Mainly, he was just he didn't see how the war would end quickly. I mean, we were trying to get to a negotiation. I think the president wanted to see how long the negotiation would take, et cetera, et cetera, Um, waiting for the perfect. Second was the red line. The State Department never put him up to saying that. Um, We were very surprised when he said that uh, were Assad to use chemical weapons that it would be a red line and it would change the American calculation on direct military force. Frankly, we were shocked when we heard he said that over at the State Department. To not back it up, I think was, um, that was a very bad mistake for three reasons. Number one, Assad has continued to use chemical weapons. That is not according to me. That's according to the United Nations and a chemical warfare international specialist body based in The Hague in the Netherlands, which has written a report. You can Google it. You can read it, um, which said that the Assad government has used chemical weapons on at least three occasions. That's what today's Security Council debate was about. Um, So he's continued to use it. I have um, heard people in the administration say, well, at least it's not sarin gas he's using. It's only chlorine gas. But, uh, no, I'm not kidding. They really say that. But for Syrians, it doesn't really matter if it's sarin or chlorine, first of all. Um, Dying of chemical weapons attacks is always a problem. Second, it is eroding the important international consensus against the use of chemical weapons that dates back to World War I. You notice that chemical weapons weren't used in World War II. There was an international consensus against their use. That is now eroding. So that's the second problem. The third problem is we warned the president that if the United States did nothing, extremist elements such as al-Qaeda, such as the Islamic State, which had just been declared. It hadn't set up its caliphate yet, but it had declared itself as a separate entity. We warned that they would, within the Syrian opposition, say, you Syrians who thought the West cared about you and cared about Muslims, see, they don't. They lie to you. And so you might as well join our jihad because the West will never help you. And it's, you, you see a real surge in the strength of the extremist groups in the autumn of 2013. And I think the red line in not enforcing it is one element of that. It's not the only one.
0: How much does that relate to the fatigue by the American people, by lawmakers with being involved in a war, especially with the quagmire that is Iraq?
1: Yeah, well, having, having been in Iraq for five years, um, I would be the first person to say we don't need to get into another quagmire. The problem is, Lucy, had we done more in 2012 and 2013, we wouldn't have American forces fighting now in Syria. How many in the audience know we have American boots on the ground in Syria? How many? Does anybody know how many? The answer is we have about 450 special operations. How many casualties have we taken in Syria? Our forces. How many? One. He was killed in action inside Syria just before Thanksgiving. I'm grateful it's only one. We are doing daily bombing raids in Syria. And we have been doing daily bombing raids in Syria for two and a half years. Anybody know when that's going to end? The whole point of what we were trying to do in 2012 and 13 was to strengthen the Syrian opposition enough so that extremists wouldn't get strong and so we could get to a negotiation to end the war and so that we wouldn't have to commit any American forces.
0: We just heard President Trump, Defense Secretary Mattis, talking about boosting defense spending now. There's speculation that we'll be sending more US troops on the ground in Syria.
2: Yeah.
0: I think we can glean from your reaction that this is not something that you support.
1: With all due respect to President Trump, the Islamic State is not a military problem. I want to say that again. The Islamic State is not a military problem. It's a political problem within Syria and within Iraq and other societies, North Africa, for example, Libya, where people feel oppressed and where they feel there is no justice. In Iraq and Syria, it's tied into connections about political power and mobilization of Sunnis and Shia um, in political disputes. But those are political problems. You can send American boots in, You can take the ground, and guess what? It's just like being in Ramadi in 2003 and 2004. It doesn't fix the problem. So I recommend to all of you, as you think about this, be asking your leaders, what's the plan for the day after? Because you can control Ramadi, we did in 2003 and 2004, but... It wasn't until we developed a political plan, 2007 and 8, that we were finally able to get ahead of the Iraq war and eventually get our forces out. I have yet to hear the administration articulate the political plan for the day after.
0: And speaking of Iraq, there are 5,000 troops there now supporting Iraqi forces.
1: Yeah, and it it goes back to what I said. What's the plan to get them out? I I have good news and I have bad news about Iraq. The good news is we're making great progress in Mosul. The bad news is the Islamic State is reappearing in places that were captured in 2014 and 2015. This is what I mean about the political plan to govern these spaces after the Islamic State is ejected.
0: You support, when you were ambassador, arming the rebels. Yes. Didn't that happen?
1: It did, but it happened well over a year after we proposed it, by which time events on the ground had gotten much worse. And second, it was done in a very tentative way. Let me just give you an example. For a long time, we were offering arms to the rebels, but would say you can't use them against Bashar al-Assad. Well, they would kind of look at us and say, well, yeah, but that's who's bombing us. And I'm not making this up. The lawyers in the administration said, no, you can't. They cannot use them against Bashar al-Assad. So it just, everything got very slow.
0: Weren't there also concerns about the arms getting into the wrong hands? Weren't there reports of weapons being stolen by Jordanians getting on the black market, also going to this al-Qaeda group in Syria?
1: So there unquestionably has been some leakage, Lucy. Um, There is never perfect control. Actually, a lot more of the weapons that the Islamic State uses came to them from the Iraqi army that we've been arming for years, but yet we're arming the Iraqis again and it is the right thing to do. We're making progress against the It's a war. There is never a perfect solution. You know what? Sometimes when we dropped arms to the French resistance in Nazi-occupied France, the Nazis captured them. Is that a reason not to have helped the French resistance? So this is what I mean about the perfect being the enemy of the good. There's never an easy answer in a civil war. I once said to the president, there are no good guys and bad guys. There are lots of guys that range from deep black to sort of light shades of gray. But if you're looking for someone with a white hat, you won't find them. But you're still gonna have to deal with a lot of those people. Maybe not the people wearing the blackest of black hats, Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, you're going to have to deal with some pretty unsavory characters if you want to get to a political negotiation.
0: You say that there's no easy solution or perfect solution. Why resign?
1: One of the jobs that an American ambassador must do, it's an absolute requirement, is you must be ready, able, and good at defending the administration's policy You can disagree with it behind closed doors. In fact, frankly, the State Department encourages dissent. Um, But once the decision is made by the President, by the Secretary of State, by your boss, when the door opens, you have to go out and say to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, you have to go out and say to the House Armed Services Committee, you have to go out and say to NPR, You have to go out and say to CNN, this policy is the right policy because of one, two, and three. I got to the point where I found the administration's policy on Syria by 2013, late 2013, was becoming indefensible publicly. And my own integrity was being challenged by senators and congressmen as I defended a policy which privately, behind closed doors, I totally disagreed with anyway. And I decided my integrity meant more than my job. So I quit my job.
0: You must have in your career, though, uh, met the, the humans behind the conflict. Um, how do you stay attached to them, the people that you maybe have met on the ground before you were working out of DC due to security concerns?
1: Well, I still see Syrians um, when I uh, travel to places like Turkey. Um, and. You see them also in Europe. a lot of them are refugees now in Europe. The human toll of this conflict is unimaginable.: um,
0: Walk us through the numbers again, because it is yeah. outstanding when. you Well, the,
1: them. the United Nations stopped counting the dead. The United Nations stopped counting the dead, somewhere at around 400,000. So there are only now estimates. You will frequently see in the press. 500,000 killed, it's just an estimate. Nobody really knows. Uh, The number, the country had a population when the uprising started in 2011. Country had a population of 23 million. Out of that 23 million, about half, close to 12 million, have been displaced from their homes. Imagine if 180 million Americans were displaced from their homes. That's the scale of the tragedy um, in Syria. Out of the roughly 11 and a half people who have been displaced out of their homes, about four and a half million have left the country altogether. The biggest numbers are in Turkey, which is hosting two million. Turkey is a pretty big country, it has a population of about 85 million. So this is not a crisis for Turkey, although it's absolutely a budget strain. Um, About a million have gone into Lebanon, which is a small country. So now one out of every five people in Lebanon, one out of every five people standing in Lebanon today is a Syrian refugee. In Jordan, the numbers of refugees are somewhere in the neighborhood of one and a half million. So if you add up what I just told you, Two plus two in Turkey, one in Lebanon, one and a half in Jordan, you get to four and a half million. And then there is like another 500,000 roughly in Germany and Europe. Um, And out of that entire number of a little over four and a half million, about 15,000 have come to the United States. So two million in Turkey, 15,000 here. That would be what? less than 1% of what Turkey has.
0: I mentioned that proposal that was announced the other day by the Trump administration to boost uh, defense spending, cuts to programs, humanitarian programs. What will that do for these people that have been displaced?
1: The hardship already of um, people uh, in these refugee camps or in refugee settlements, a lot of them aren't even in camps because Lebanon, for example, refuses to set up camps. They want those Syrians to go home. Um, the suffering is terrible children freeze to death in the winter it gets surprisingly cold in uh, Syria and Lebanon in the winter they get a lot of snow not as much as we get in northern Vermont but they get a lot of snow Um, and and we have had instances of children freezing to death Um, the United Nations which is broadly responsible the United Nations uh, High Commission for Refugees is broadly responsible for getting assistance to refugees worldwide. The last two years, they have only gotten 40% 40% of their um, requirement to provide food and shelter to Syrian refugees. So they've had to cut food rations uh, dramatically. They aren't able to provide tents and blankets uh, to everyone that needs them. And people are scrounging. What that means in a real sense is For example, child labor among Syrian refugee populations in places like Lebanon and Jordan is rampant. Uh, Prostitution is a major problem. Families are suffering terribly.
0: In this country, refugees, as you know, are villainized.
1: Yes, yes.
0: (laughs) A lot of these people in this room are sympathetic. There are some people in this room, I'm sure, that would um, support when the president says that we need to close down our borders, we have to worry about the national security of our country. How do you respond to that, um, the fear of refugees, and how do you balance that with national yeah. security concerns?
1: I would say this. The vetting that we put Syrian refugees through is the most intensive, intrusive screening and questioning of any visitor's to the United States. It is so intrusive, there are so many repeat rounds of interviews by different intelligence agencies cross-checking information back and forth, that the normal refugee, just to get approval on security, it takes one and a half to two years. Uh, that means one and a half to two years living in the conditions that I was just describing. Um, we have brought 15,000 Syrian refugees to the United States over the last three years. How many of them have been arrested for terrorism offenses? Does anyone know? Zero. Now, that's good. Here's a harder question. Syria's not so different from Iraq in many ways. Iraq had a horrible civil war. You could argue it isn't even finished yet. We have let in, in the last 10 years, over 150,000 Iraqi refugees. Does anyone know how many of those Iraqi refugees have been arrested for terrorism-related offenses? Five, out of those five, three were arrested for trying to leave the United States to join Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State fighting against Bashar al-Assad. Wasn't anti-American, it was anti-Assad. That's three of the five. Two were arrested for trying to start a network in the United States. So that's quite anti-American. Two out of 150,000. I'm not saying there's no risk, there is some. But I would say this to you. Number one, do you really think that's riskier than rescinding a a, a executive order that prevents people with a history of mental illness from buying a gun? Number two, I think most of the adults in the room would agree that there's always some element of risk in life. If you want to avoid being hit by lightning or hit by a car, stay in bed. But if you want to do the right thing for helping fellow human beings, then you would insist that there be good screening of these people before they come, because they do come from a milieu, an environment, where there are extremists operating. You insist on that screening, but you accept at a certain point, especially after one and a half to two years of the FBI, the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, Homeland Security, and other agencies that I'm not even allowed to mention, you would say that after one and a half to two years of their screening and cross-checking information back and forth individually, you would say, that's good enough. We'll take the chance.
0: That's former U.S. Ambassador to Syria Robert Ford. He was in Hartford on Tuesday for a World Affairs Council of Connecticut event to talk about the Syrian civil war and refugee crisis. When we come back from the break, we'll explore how refugees are vetted and hear from the executive director of IRIS, a refugee resettlement agency in New Haven, Connecticut. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're bringing you a recent conversation I had with former U.S. Ambassador to Syria, Robert Ford. He spoke at a World Affairs Council of Connecticut event Tuesday night, and we spent time on a question we hear from listeners, and that is, how can Americans trust the process used to vet refugees before they enter the country? Chris George, executive director of IRIS in New Haven, a refugee resettlement agency, joined our conversation to answer that question and more. The reason I wanted to have you join the conversation, because we're talking about uh, the fear of refugees, you've been working, you and your staff have been working with refugees for a long time. First, tell us how many Syrians have been able to find a new home in Connecticut?
2: I think the total number of Syrians who are in Connecticut is probably a little over 400. We've welcomed um, about 350 of them uh, over the past three years. Wonderful people, tough, salt of the earth, most of them kind of blue-collar, determined to work hard, get a job, start a new life. I mean, they come for all the right reasons, freedom, security, opportunity to have a future. They all care about their kids more than anything else. That's the first thing they'll talk about if you ask them why they came. And sometimes they're just so desperate to find a future for their kids, they'll put them on these ridiculous rubber boats, and and take just unbelievable risks. And when our government reduces the number of refugees that we bring to this country, the executive order calls for a reduction of 110,000 down to just 50,000. That translates to about 15,000 families, refugees from all over the world who will not be coming to the United States. Now I'd like to think the governments around the world might step up and make up that difference. But the U.S. has been a leader in refugee resettlement. And when we abandon that leadership role, I'm afraid the countries around the world will also step away from bringing large numbers of refugees. So it could have a ripple effect. And more and more refugees will become desperate, sweat it out in refugee camps the executive order the stroke of a pen will lead some people to die i mean there's no question about it refugees will die as a consequence of the us bringing fewer to this country
0: I brought up vetting with the ambassador. That's a question you get often from people in the community. You remember the climate uh, back when Congress was talking about it after the Paris attacks, and we heard from governors around this nation who said, we don't want refugees in our state.
2: But our governor in Connecticut, whatever you think about his other policies, he has been strong on refugee resettlement. He did his homework, he read the Constitution, He realized that, no, we cannot discriminate against legal residents on the basis of their country of origin. Syrian refugees will be welcomed here. He also realized that it would be just very un-American to turn Syrian refugees away. So he said, no, Connecticut will welcome all refugees who have been selected by the State Department and have passed through that rigorous Department of Homeland Security vetting process.
0: We keep saying that it's rigorous. We heard the ambassador explain it. You've talked about it. I
2: talk about it all the time, Lucy.
0: You know, On our show, we've done shows about immigration. We have experts talking about the vetting process. We still get follow-up emails questioning how stringent this process is. What do you tell those people?
2: Can you give me four minutes? Go ahead. All right. We're going to go to the Zaatari refugee camp in Jordan, and we're going to go through the vetting process. The first stop is the United Nations, and I ask UNHCR, I'm a US government official, that's why I wore a tie today. We're gonna ask UNHCR, give me a list of the refugees who are most in need of resettlement, the most vulnerable families, because that's what the State Department wants to select for resettlement. I don't ask for the best educated refugees, or the refugees who are the most employable, or those who speak English. Give me a list of the most vulnerable. So I see on this list, Abdullah, Fatima, and their daughter Selwa. Family from home Syria. Okay, you ran a used clothing shop in Homs. And Fatima, you were studying for four months at the university. You wanted to be an English teacher. And Selwa's your six-year-old daughter. She's been traumatized because a barrel bomb dropped in their neighborhood. She hasn't been the same since. She's not sleeping at night. She's not speaking very much. She's got some pretty serious problems. She saw four of her neighbors killed in front of her abdullah your clothing shop was blown up not once but twice the second time you boarded it up is that why you fled no it wasn't that it was when syrian troops came to your home while you were away looking for day jobs and abducted fatima they threatened to torture her because they wanted to find out where her older brother was hiding he didn't want to have anything to do with the war so he fled and he was hiding in the northern part of the country They were threatening to torture you in all variety of ways I won't go into, and that was the last straw. That's why you packed up your bags and you went to the camp. So you're in the refugee camp now, and I've done the first round of interviews. Next, you're passed over to the stage that's run by the Department of Homeland Security. Now the interview becomes more like an interrogation. Tell me the names of all of your friends and family where did you live all of the addresses where you lived what was the address of the clothing shop who were your suppliers who were your customers do you have any receipts or bills or paperwork from the shop and i know you were at the university for only four months tell me the names of the courses that you took the professors your classmates were you a member of any clubs any societies did you participate in any political demonstrations Abdullah, were you in any demonstrations? Ah, you were in that one of those early demonstrations. You think they have a photograph of you, and that's another reason why you're worried. Is this really your daughter? We'll do DNA testing to determine your relationship. Also, fingerprints, please, all of you. Give me your fingerprints, passports, birth certificates, certificates of graduation, FBI forensic teams. will examine all of these documents. All of this information is shared with the CIA, with the FBI, with the intelligence departments of all of the armed forces, with international terrorist watch lists, governments that we have relations with. We might even check with, excuse me if I say this, the Jordanian intelligence department. Maybe they were tapping his phone. That was one of the secret sources that we're maybe not supposed to mention. Maybe they were surveilling you when you left the refugee camp. All of this information is cross-checked, and then you wait for six months. And you come back again, another round of questions. Tell me again, what day uh, did the barrel bomb blow up? And tell me again, what day was your shop blown up? And tell me again about the day that those armed troops came to your house and abducted you. What kind of uniforms were they wearing? What kind of accents did they have? What exactly did they say? What were their names? How many? What time of day? Where did they take you? Tell me again the details of how they were going to torture you. I'm sorry. Here's a box of tissue. I know this is tough. And then you go and you wait again for another six months, maybe. And then you're invited back again for another round of questioning. All of this will take sometimes more than two years. And if at the end of this process there's any doubt about the honesty or the accuracy of what you said, you're off the list. We don't take chances. You're off the list. And thousands have been screened out. So when you hear people say, oh, we're just letting refugees into this country. They're just streaming in, you know, like, like you know, refugees move through Europe. They're not being vetted. That's not true. Thank you, Abdullah, Fatima, and Selwa. They did make it through, and then they had a health screening, and then they were asked to tell us the name of any friend or relative they have in the United States where maybe they could be resettled. If they don't know anyone in the United States, they're just arbitrarily assigned to any state. If you're lucky, you'll be sent to a place you've never heard of, and you can't pronounce, Connecticut. (laughs) You're going to Connecticut.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for that. That was Chris George, Executive Director of Iris in New Haven, at a recent panel discussion with the former U.S. Ambassador to Syria, Robert Ford.
1: I want to make one other point, because I think this is important. If I ever got to talk to President Trump about this, this is what I would tell him. I would say, Mr. President, when you issued that decree blocking Syrians, Iraqis, Libyans coming here, the Islamic State's response was, in their own social media, they called it, al al-Mubarak, the blessed decision. Why? Because they knew it would help them with their recruiting. It showed that Americans hate Muslims, and that's the Islamic State narrative they use to recruit young people, people who feel hopeless, people who feel that the world is against them, that they have no future. That's their recruitment field, and the blessed decision helps them recruit. And it makes absolutely no sense to me, Mr. President, to increase military fighting against the Islamic State, more bombers, more money, soldiers into Syria. At the same time, politically, we're helping them recruit. So we kill them over here, and they just replace them with recruits over there. And it's a cycle. That doesn't make a lot of sense, to undermine what the military right hand is doing with a really clumsy, ill-thought-out left-hand strategy. Frankly, you're putting our own service members at risk.
0: President Trump is quoted as saying he will destroy ISIS. Under the new Secretary of State Tillerson and uh, the many reports of the relationship, the closeness of the Trump administration with Russia, what do you think is going to happen?
1: Nikki Haley, our ambassador in the United Nations, after the Russians vetoed for the seventh time an effort to get the United Nations to punish Syria, uh, Nikki Haley was really scathing about the Russians. I mean, very tough. So I don't think that we're going to be working with the Russians anytime soon on Syria. The Russian goal is not to fight the Islamic State. Russia did not send its forces to Syria to fight the Islamic State. More than 80% of the bombing targets that the Russian Air Force has hit are moderate opposition fighting Bashar al-Assad. They're not Islamic State and they're not al-Qaeda. There's a reason for that. The reason is the Russians are trying to keep Bashar al-Assad in power. That's not the American objective. The American objective, frankly, I don't think Trump gives a hoot whether Bashar stays or not. He's interested in the Islamic State. Unfortunately, that's not really what the Russians are interested in. Putin may say that, but when it comes time to actually put up or shut up, Putin has been very consistent.
0: Do the rebels stand any chance?
1: No. Any new tactics? No, I mean, uh, the war will just kind of grind on. I actually think there will be less fighting in the next year and 2018 than there has been over the last couple of years because the opposition is weaker, but fighting, I'm sure, will go on. You know, if you haven't lived in a police state, a secret police state, I don't think you can understand how hard it is to take the chance to go home again. When you can be arrested, there's no such thing as an arrest warrant in Syria. And there's no such thing as habeas corpus. Um, You can just be disappeared, and then you end up as one of the numbers in an Amnesty International report. And that's what people are facing.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy nall We're listening back to a conversation with former U.S. Ambassador to Syria, Robert Ford, hosted by the World Affairs Council of Connecticut at UConn Law School Tuesday night. After the break, we'll hear audience questions about refugees and the role other nations could play as Syrian President Assad remains in power. That's coming up. This is where we live, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, East Windsor is one step closer to having a casino after the Mashantucket Pequot and Mohegan tribe selected the town as the site of a possible third gaming facility in Connecticut. On the next where we live, we'll ask, how would this casino transform East Windsor and the region? That's coming up tomorrow. Today, we're airing a conversation about the Syrian civil war and refugee crisis. I moderated the discussion Tuesday evening with guests Robert Ford, the former U.S. ambassador to Syria, and Chris George, executive director of IRIS, a refugee resettlement agency in New Haven. Both men took questions from the
1: audience. Um, so this question is for Chris George. Uh, my name is Art Hunt. I live in Hamden, Connecticut. I'm wondering how many refugees you've been able to resettle during this hiatus when there's been a stay on, on the refugee ban.
2: Well, the executive order was signed on the 27th of January. There was a momentary pause of a s- few days, but then, thank God, there's an independent judiciary in this country, and uh, the courts uh, challenged the administration, and um, refugees immediately started coming. State Department officials went in that next weekend. They worked overtime to begin processing people who were at the very end of the pipeline. So my organization, IRIS in New Haven, we resettled probably about 30, 35 people since the executive order.
1: Well, Mario
0: Chiappetti, I wanted to ask you about the role that Turkey is playing And um, what will happen to the Kurds? And are they working with us or against us, or working both sides?
1: Turkey is the country most affected by what's going on in Syria, because they have the longest border. They have a um, 500-mile border with Syria, and they have the largest refugee population. So they're keenly interested. It would be kind of like Syria is to Turkey as Mexico is to the United States. imagine if Mexico was having a terrible civil war it'd be kind of like that so the Turks fairly early on tried to get Bashar al-Assad when I was ambassador in Damascus for example the Turks tried very hard to get a mediation going between the opposition and Bashar al-Assad. Assad basically blew them off he made a series of promises to Turkish President Erdogan and then promptly broke them which infuriated the Turks And they finally said, "Okay, that's it. We can't deal with this guy anymore. He's not credible. He lies. We were glad that the Turks finally understood that. So they, like the Saudis and with the Saudis, um, began funneling arms in. Um, Not right away, frankly, sometime in the first half of 2012. They didn't tell us when they started doing it. The Turks, like the Saudis, were rather indiscriminate in terms of who they armed. And absolutely, like the Saudis, they gave some weapons to bad guys. I think most of the weapons did not go to bad guys, but absolutely some of them did. They lost, or their clients lost. Iran and Russia won. The biggest problem for Turkey, though, is actually not Bashar al-Assad. It's the Kurds. And the reason is that Syrian Kurds and Turkish Kurds are basically the same people. I'm, what I mean by that is, it is the same community. The border between Turkey and Syria is very arbitrary. It, does anybody know on what basis the border in the eastern part of Turkey, eastern part of Syria, does anybody know what that border, what what put the line where it is, anybody know? It was, it was the Berlin to Baghdad railway line of Kaiser Wilhelms, Germany, before World War I. After World War I, Syria was under French control. Turkey became a republic after the Ottoman Empire under a guy named Kamal Ataturk. There was some fighting between the French forces and the Turkish forces. They finally agreed to stop fighting each other. And they basically took that rail line and they said, everything north of the rail line is the Republic of Turkey. Everything south of the rail line is Syria. But, of course, Kurds had been working on the rail line. They needed jobs. They were... You know, they were tribal peasants. They needed the money. The rail line had day labor jobs, paid money. So they were living all up and around the rail line on both sides. There had been no border. It had all been Ottoman Empire, Turkey. So the border immediately separated families. Fast forward 80 years. The people in the Turkish cities still have their first and second cousins over in Syria. The Turkish concern... Is that the group the Americans are helping now in northern Syria, the group the Americans are helping in northern Syria against the Islamic State, also believes that the Kurds in both Turkey and Syria should have the right to an independent state if they want it one day. Which means, of course, a large section of Turkey will be cut out, taken away. That, for the Turks, is completely unacceptable. And so the Turks have been working against the people that we're working with. The Turks have a pretty good argument, in my opinion. The group that the Americans are helping, it's called the PYD, uh, its mother organization is on the American terrorism list. The fighters that we're helping frequently have fought against Turkey under the Kurdish Workers' Party, which is on our terrorism list. It's also on the European Union's terrorism list. It's also on Turkey's terrorism list conversations between Turkish President Erdogan and President Obama usually went like this. Why are you helping one terrorism group fight another terrorism group? Don't work with terrorists. President Obama, these are the only people that fight the Islamic State. We have to help them. Turkey. But they are terrorists too. They're attacking us. American, we don't care. We only care about Islamic State. Do you see how that kind of diplomacy didn't get very far with Turkey? (laughs) So, this is an active issue now for the Trump administration, and if you notice, the first country in the world that the new CIA director visited was Turkey, and you know this is exactly what was on the agenda. And Jerry Mattis, the new defense secretary, visited Turkey the week before last, and you know this was on the agenda. I don't know, frankly, where this is going to come out. Turkey is lobbying really hard with the Trump administration to stop helping that PYD Kurdish group and to work with other groups instead against the Islamic State. And the US military is saying, if we do that, it will take months and months to train a new non-Kurdish force, and we need to keep going after the Islamic State right now. Turks be damned.
2: I think I can say for everyone, there's been a terrific program and thank you very much. Let me ask Ambassador Ford perhaps a very difficult question. Um, I think many Americans have been disappointed with um, several American administrations policies in the East, And I, I was wondering if you could look back even as far as 50, 60 years and say which American administration uh, you admire the most for their Middle Eastern policy and why was it more successful than the others?
0: You're stumped.
1: (laughs) I'll tell you which one I admire the most. No, I know which one I admire the most. I'm trying to think how much I want to say. George Herbert Walker Bush and James Baker organized an international coalition that worked with Arab countries, even Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafez al-Assad, Egyptians, Moroccans, others, Russia, Europeans. They organized a coalition. They had a very specific war aim, and they had a plan. Take back Kuwait and stop. And then turn it back over to the Kuwaitis and leave. You know what? The Kuwait war actually didn't go so bad. And then Baker was able to take that and parlay it into a Middle East peace process, which ended up with the Jordan-Israel peace treaty. Didn't get the peace treaty between Syria Israel didn't get the peace treaty between Lebanon and Israel well Lebanon's captive to Syria anyway so but they made a lot of progress and what I liked is they understood in a way that frankly a lot of other administrations have not understood how you blend limited military force with diplomacy to get your political goal I I sure don't hear a lot of people talking about how to use the military to get to the political goal, how to blend it with diplomacy. It seems like it's either one or the other. It shouldn't be one or the other. In many instances, you have to blend them. Richard Holbrook's signal achievement of the Dayton Accords that ended the conflict in the Bosnia was a combination of military pressure from the U.S. Air Force and NATO and diplomacy. I, the Baker people, George Herbert Walker people, totally understand that. It seems that it's been sort of lost in the glorification of the American military lately. And I say that with the highest respect for our military personnel with whom I was in Iraq for five years. Nobody is more dedicated than, than they are. But I hate to see them sent out on missions where the end state is a political end state, not a military end state.
2: Um, Ambassador.
1: As someone who's been very critical of the American foreign policy in the Middle East, how can you convince me and others who think like me that Russia dropping bombs in Syria is worse than the United States conducting drone strikes in Yemen, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and even Iraq, I believe? Unquestionably, our drone strikes have caused civilian casualties. No question. I would just ask you if, realistically, you think the Russians bombing of hospitals intentionally, I would just ask you if the Russians providing materials so that the Syrian Air Force can drop chemical weapons, which are very indiscriminate, if you really would equate that with drone strikes, where the number of civilian casualties, while not acceptable, is much smaller. I'm not going to defend every single drone strike. We have made lots of mistakes. It's a war. But I don't think putting the United States and Russia on the same moral standard can be justified by the facts. And when the president of the United States did it to an American media outlet two weeks ago, I was shocked. Not only did I disagree, but I was just shocked at the lack of judgment.
0: That's Robert Ford, the former U.S. ambassador for Syria. He was in Hartford earlier this week for a panel discussion on the Syrian civil war and refugee crisis. Ford's also a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. Thanks to the World Affairs Council of Connecticut and UConn Law School for hosting the event. And also thanks to IRIS Executive Director Chris George for participating. Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.